Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 11th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today uh, in the place of the absent Noah Rothman, we have friend of the podcast, uh, AI scholar, editor of National Affairs, uh, author of uh, two highly praised books whose names elude me right now. More than two books, actually, because there's like scholarly books. And I don't know. All that. He's 12 years old and it's very annoying. Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. Hi, John. Good to be here. Okay, we've got the uh, the something republic. The fractured republic. The fractured right. republic. Right. And a time to build. And a time, and to, a build. time to build, right. Yeah. Which I got to say, maybe not the best title because it's got a little bit of that like ghost-written yeah. senator title. You know, I, I have not come up with any titles of my books. I've always come up with much, much worse titles than they end up having. And the publisher comes up with something and I'm so relieved that it's better than mine that we just go with that. Okay, well, come to me. I'm very good at uh, titles, so you should come to me and I'll, 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 I'll help because um, I'm, uh, that's why it's, I, I felt comfortable insulting the title of A Time <laughs> to Build a little bit because it, it did have a, it has a slightly generic quality. It's anything mm-hmm. but a generic book because, of course, this is the source. This book is the source of Yuval's now, now uh, much uh, bandied about idea that, um, that uh, Congress in particular has become uh, a platform rather than a molder or a mold uh, and that uh, politicians go into it to stand on it, to use it rather than to be formed, be formed by it. Um, so anyway, uh, enough, enough praise and insult and criticism <laughs> of Yuval Levin. Um, and we will now move on to the insulting of Joe Biden, who is today uh, going to Georgia to launch uh, infrastructure week, uh, Democratic Party infrastructure week, by which I mean that uh, he is going to start pushing very hard on these two voting rights bills that have no ch- chance of passage, as far as we can tell. Um, you've all uh, you've written quite a lot about this and quite a lot about uh, the fact that there is a possible bipartisan voting compromise that uh is before everybody and um that uh, it's manifestly clear the democrats have have made a very conscious decision to reject in favor of a much more aggressive strategy to promote their own more radical and incendiary bills that as i say uh aren't probably aren't going anywhere I mean, almost certainly aren't going anywhere. But so, um, what do you what do you make of Biden's trip? Of course, he's going with Kamala Harris because you know she really enhances every appearance. No, he's going with an entire entourage. He's taken like half the Congressional Black Caucus, and then Kamala's flying on Air Force Two with a whole bunch of other people. Like this is a big junket. This is this is a big production. It's like when King Lear shows up at your castle, and you have to you know you have to host a hundred people to host his train of a hundred people. So that is, uh, that is Biden, Biden today who will be making, of course, all the stops, right? He's, uh, he's uh, going to visit uh, the Ebenezer Baptist church and he'll pay tribute to the, this, and he'll go to that and he'll do that. And then he'll talk about voting rights. Okay. So 
Yuval, the president, voting rights, Kamala, 100 people. Well, look, I, I think it has to be said that what's going on here is a kind of coddling of a conspiracy theory about elections. Um, no one's super comfortable putting it that way, but the Democrats have persuaded themselves that our democracy is on the verge of total collapse. The way they've done this is by persuading themselves that Republican state legislatures are taking away people's right to vote. Uh, the main instance of that they can point to is, oddly enough, in Georgia. Um, and they talk about a law enacted in Georgia last year that, in fact, was fairly modest, made small changes uh, that rolled back some COVID-era accommodations for voting and that also uh, empower the state legislature over local election officials in a variety of ways. I think that law is not necessary. I don't think there's any problem to fix in particular. Um, but the idea that this law takes away people's right to vote is crazy. The notion that our election system is on the verge of uh, the collapse of democracy is false. And it's being used to basically uh, rile up the base of the Democratic Party and get people worked up about the need to eliminate the filibuster and uh, and make sure Republicans don't win the next election. And the fact is, what the Democrats are doing here is awfully similar to the way Republicans have come to talk about elections in the wake of 2020. And it's a huge problem. Everybody's telling voters not to trust our election system. And here comes the president. We'll see what he says this afternoon, but it sure seems like he's getting ready to say, if we don't pass these laws in Congress, you can't trust the election system. And, you know, that strikes me as nuts, as a, a terrible mistake to make. And it's also politically bizarre, as you say, John, because they're not going to pass these laws. It, it's pretty clear they don't have the 50 votes they'd need to get rid of the filibuster here because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and probably a few others um, don't want to do that. And so they're setting up this massive spectacle for what will then be a failure that can anger the base of their party. It's just a very, very strange way to be president. So I just want to say, so in that way, it is also um, the mirror image of what Trump did in, in the fact that it's, that it won't be successful at all. And that it and that's not even its purpose really. I mean, I think, I think the difference is that uh, when, when Trump was president, he believed that the, 2020 election was uh, unfair. Uh, I don't think Biden believes that that any of this is actually about voting rights. Exactly. Oh, I, I it, do. It's, I, I yeah, do. and it's. I just. I just want to add to to both yeah. of those points that it's not just Biden because Nancy Pelosi went on all the news shows this weekend and she said, "I quote." What the Republicans are doing across the country is really a legislative con continuation of January 6th. That's what she said. So I believe they believe it. Uh, I mean, yeah. I believe that the root gut feeling among Democrats in the country is that they uh, are the rightful rulers of the country and that when they don't win elections, uh, there is chicanery involved. Now, that is something that is an idea that now I think infects both parties or maybe it always does. Maybe it's always like you cheat. If you, if you won, 
you cheated and it's not fair. Like a, a, you know, like a kid, like one of my nephews who, you know, if you played a board game with him and you won the board game, he would say you cheated. Like he couldn't bear losing. And so that was his, that was his, you know, he was eight. So, you know, and, and, and they're not eight. So that's one problem with this. But I mean, I have no doubt that you go to Georgia and you say elections are stolen and there is an entire political social media an elite infrastructure that says yes because they view the 2018 loss of Stacey Abrams as an illegitimate defeat, even though it was by about 50,000 votes. So how do you how do you illegitimately lose an election with that number of votes? Well, something systematic had to have happened to have prevented 50,000 people from coming to the polling place and voting because you can't say it's because of fraud. You can't say it's because of there are just too many, too many votes. So the idea is that there was a there is a structural advantage, an, an illicit structural advantage that put into place. And so any change in 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 voting laws that involves some form of logistical tightening, let's say, I don't know how else you would you would put it, uh, is, is put in place in order to suppress the voter who might otherwise come out to vote. Now. I wanted to bring up one thing with 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 you, Yuval, because Chris Starwalt's written about this for us, and he's a colleague of yours at AI. That uh, Republicans participate in this delusion as well, because they have come to accept in some weird way. I think largely because of the because of the fact that um, you know there have been these elections in which you know Trump won the 2016 election while losing by by three million votes nationally. Uh, that um, they should restrict the vote because if they actually allow liberal voting laws they will never win an election again and that uh, republican strength lies in base turnout and ginning up enthusiasm and not in uh convincing the public which is um which is drunk on being uh seduced by money uh from uh, from government coffers and that um there is absolutely no sociological or or uh, the political science evidence to support the idea that a smaller electorate by definition helps Republicans. But um, there's an entire realm of the political consultant class that believes this because they sell voter. They, it's not voter suppression is the wrong term here. They sell negative electioneering as a form of uh, lowering the enthusiasm of the opposite party's voter and uh, there's 40 years of this, and this is something that people sell as a practical political strategy. It was sort of birthed by Lee Atwater to some extent, uh, that what you want to do is depress your rival's vote. If you can do that, you can win elections, even if your own voting base is not all that enthusiastic. Yeah, I think there's also a, a, a sort of deeper um, preconception here in both parties basically that high turnout helps Democrats and low turnout helps Republicans. And both parties believe this. It's not true. It's not true at all. Um, the, it, this is one of those things, you know, it's like every economist favors the value added tax and no non-economist favors it. <laughs> um, so every political scientist will tell you and the, the, the turnout rate in an election does not affect the outcome. It is not the case that high turnout helps the left, low turnout helps the right. It just isn't. But everybody in politics thinks that it is. Um, there's a, I, 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 can, I can point to national affairs here in our fall issue. We had a piece by two political scientists, Darren Shaw and John Petrosik, 
who wrote a book about this a little while back. Uh, the piece is just called Does High Voter Turnout Help One Party? And they, they work through f- 50 years of evidence now that it is just not the case. Republicans win lots and lots of high turnout elections, uh, just as much as Democrats do. And there's just not a partisan valence here. But that view is actually very deeply ingrained in both parties. Democrats believe if, you, if we could get 100 percent voter participation, the left would win every time. And Republicans believe that, too. Um, and so I think that that does have something to do with the way that both parties approach the voting question, where very often you find Republicans concerned about integrity, which basically means having more rules that constrain who can vote. And Democrats just want everybody voting all the time. I, I think that that's uh, contributed some to the crazy character of the debates we're having. But it, there's an even more profound problem with those debates, which is that there's not even a problem with voting. If there's a problem to be solved here, it's not about who can vote and when and how, right? It's easy to vote now in America, including in Georgia. It's much easier to vote than it was 10 years ago, in part because of COVID, but also because of other things. This has just been the trend everywhere. And there's very little fraud, so that if there are problems in our system, they might have to do with what happens after people vote. They particularly might have to do with what we actually saw on January 6th, which is the role of Congress in counting the electoral vote for president is vague and bizarre and creates problems. That could be fixed. But what the Democrats are going after and what the Republicans are going after in the states is just not where any problems exist. And it's just a way to troll people and to persuade their own voters that the other party is an enemy of democracy. That's why I said that I don't think that Joe Biden, for example, believes it. Uh, I, I, look, I think there are activists who believe it. I, I don't think he's one of them. I think he's he will try on whatever whatever sort of um, uh, um, gripe they 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 sort of you know put in front of him uh, to, to to see if he can he can stir up support through it. My impression, my impression from talking to people about this on the Hill and elsewhere is that everybody believes both parties believe what they're saying about elections. Republicans really believe that Democrats are out to create massive fraud uh, in every state so that they win every election. And Democrats really believe Republicans now hate democracy and are trying to prevent people from voting. Uh, I, I sort of hope they don't believe it, but it seems to me they do. There is an interesting dynamic at play in Biden's speech today, and that's that a lot of the activists in Georgia are very publicly stating this is BS, like we're not going to go to his speech. He's just coming down here. It's too little. It's too late. We want the legend federal legislation. He hasn't done enough to do that. So in some sense, the, the, the more the most radical uh, elements of the Democratic Party that have been pushing this message consistently for a long time, the ones who still believe Stacey Abrams is the legitimate governor of Georgia. They've had they're very dissatisfied with Biden right now. And it's not clear that him giving a speech and using the bully pulpit, you know, now is really going to persuade them that he's committed to this idea, even if, as you say, I agree, I think they actually do believe there's this general threat to democracy. I mean, I I don't that that gets to how again, not to jump on jump on aim too much, but how um, there is a kind of. mutually assured psychosis going on here because what, what exactly was it that he was supposed to do? I mean, one of the interesting things of the democracy in crisis argument 
Um, and that, you know, 2024 is the last chance to save America and that uh, there'll be a Reichstag. Either there was a Reichstag fire, there's going to be a Reichstag fire. I don't really understand where and what, whether it's 1931 or it's 1934. I don't know what year we're in uh, in the in the bad historical analogy business. But um, uh, the idea there is if the democracy is in crisis, then everything should have fallen. You know, everything should be second that uh, what Biden was elected for was to prevent any future efforts by people like Trump to do what he was going to do, number one, and number two, to to in, ensure that this stay effort was going to be. And so because, it, and it was, in fact, you know, the first order of business in the Congress to pass H.R. 1 or whatever it was. Maybe it was H.R. 2. Is it 1 or 2? It was 1? Yeah, H.R. 1. Right, the John Lewis Act. Mm-hmm. Um uh, so if you do anything else, then you're, you're actually distracting from the only important matter, which is the literally the future of the country. And then, I don't know whether I'm mad at Biden, Congress then did everything else. What, what happened in the course of 2021? They talked about social infrastructure. They did the, the infrastructure. No, they did the infrastructure stuff and everything was focused on COVID. And then he did Afghanistan and all of that. Well, is that what they're mad about? Are they mad about what Biden has done? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think all this, all this functions as a kind of, um, as a kind of hysteria. It's like, uh, what they want is some kind of program of American denazification in which, you pass laws to prevent people with views that you think are, you know, have been, you know, horribly destructive, not only from being able to get the levers of power again, but also to do things like talk about it. Like Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, now supports legislation that would make it a crime to purvey misinformation about elections, meaning. You can't say if you say the election was stolen, you can get arrested. That's that is that's he's the democratically he is the Democrat who was elected governor of the state of of Washington. That is hysteria. But it's it's an interesting example of where this mindset goes to. And it's the perfect all in one explanation for every any and every failure that ever takes place. Okay, and, and I have to say, it's not just Inslee. This is baked into the remarks that Biden is likely to give today. And we know this, a White House aide was speaking to Politico and said that Biden is going to describe this moment as one of the rare moments in a country's history when time stops and the essential is immediately ripped away from the trivial. And we have to ensure January 6th doesn't mark the end of democracy, but the beginning of a renaissance for our democracy. That is not the language of a caretaker president who wants to make sure that the system is working and everything is everyone doing the job they should do. That is very existential threat posed and a pretty overreaching response. Time doesn't stop on, on a president's watch. Think about how detached that is from what they're actually trying to do. For example, Chuck Schumer hasn't even said what bill is on the floor for, for them to vote on. Uh, and all and they're supposed to vote Friday. On Friday, yeah. And, <laughs> and Tuesday. The, if you really think democracy is on the verge of destruction, Maybe you would work to craft a bill that, you know, Mitt Romney could vote for. It wouldn't actually be that hard, but they've made sure that these bills are thoroughly partisan bills. They, they have elements in them that are certain to keep Susan Collins from supporting them. 
There is not one Republican who will back these bills. And so it, it, there's such a distance, such a mismatch between what they want to say here and what they want to do. And you now have a situation where some Republicans, including Romney and Collins, are saying, well, OK, if we're worried about what happened on January 6th, let's try to fix the Electoral Count Act, which actually controlled what happened on January 6th. They're working on that with four or five Democrats. And Schumer and Biden are adamantly against doing this. They want to push these larger bills that push a different kind of message that basically let them say Republicans are trying to destroy our democracy rather than actually trying to do something to somehow change the laws that that they claim are creating problems here. It's such it, it, it is it is pure hysteria. I don't think that that means they don't believe it. I think that means the problem runs pretty deep here. I mean, in a funny way, the parties are now mirror images of each other on elections where Democrats are saying what Republicans are saying. But in the future tense, the Republicans are talking about 2020 as if something happened, which just didn't happen. And Democrats are talking about 2024 as if something's going to happen, which just isn't going to happen. And they're both so detached from reality that they can't speak to each other. Well, think about what Biden is doing in terms of delegitimizing his own victory. So here's a guy, he won 81 million votes. Like that is by far the largest number of votes that have ever been, ca- I mean, by a, by 11 million, right? Like Obama got 70 million votes in, in 2008. He got 81 million in 2020. 155 million people voted. Um, uh, he got he had a margin of seven million over over Trump. Trump got seventy four million people to vote. He got eighty one million. That's one hundred and fifty five million people voted in twenty twenty. And he's and he won by you know uh, eighty electoral votes. Uh, and he's fundamentally claiming that under the current realities, his own election was somehow either a fluke or lucky or somehow illegitimate because how can any election be legitimate if you follow, if you accept the logic of the John Lewis act, which is that state level elections in the, in the United States need to be taken over by the federal government to ensure their accuracy and fairness. And by the way, not to get all even more conspiratorial, if you're worried about uh, conspiracies, controlling elections, centralizing control of elections in the executive branch of the United States, under the political domination of the attorney general, who is usually among the most partisan officials appointed by a president, is insane. You want 50 states. You want there to be as much balkanization and breakup of how elections are run simply to prevent conspiracies from taking place. If you think about the conspiracy theory that governs, that is now, you know, the most popular about uh, 2020 and what the uh, Republicans are up to. The uh, January 6th commission is apparently going toward this, that one way you can prove that there was a conspiracy that culminated in January 6th was that on the day the electors were meeting in, in, in the states, in Michigan and in Arizona in particular, but a couple of others, um, there were little noticed efforts to uh, announce that there was an alternate slate of Republican electors uh, that was present, uh, you know, in Lansing, in Michigan, for example, they were off in some other room. They were the Republican electors. They actually created some document, official looking document that there's some thought might be might uh, open the people who did this up to uh, accusations of forgery and fraud, saying that they were the legitimately elected electors and that they were Trump electors and they cast the 10 electoral votes for 
to for Trump and and uh, and Pence and not for um, not uh, Trump and not for uh, for Biden, and that there were these slates in the several states, and and they created this. They went and they said they did this, and they created this document, and that they were the ones who were going to come to Washington on January sixth and be the alternate slate of electors and claim some official mandate as the electors that a document that then Pence could accept and say, okay, well, this is actually the right slate of electors. I'm not recognizing the Michigan papers that have been handed to me and I'm going to go with this. Um, but it didn't happen right now. It's possible that there was a, you know, well-organized uh, Catiline conspiracy to have different electors and different slates and slates come to Washington and be in another room and be brought in to create all the chaos. That was clearly part of the John Eastman memo. But it, but it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a lunatic jalopy that didn't, that didn't go, you know, I mean, the, I, I, the, those electors weren't in, in Washington, on the 6th of January, that none of, none of that happened. And Biden ends up winning by exactly the margin that he won on uh, election day. Unlike Trump, by the way, who actually lost two electors between election day and, 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 the, and the electoral uh, count uh, on January 6, 2021. He, he got 306 electors, according to the election stats, and 304 voted for him. Uh, so he, they actually did get two faithless electors. But um, so this is psychotic, like the, the number of levers that you would hoops you would have to jump through to have a state level, to have a national state level you know, system, cons- conspiracy system to use the Electoral Count Act to overturn the election. There will never be. I know this is the idea that, oh, this is the first time. And now next time they'll do better and they'll be able to do it better. But of course, you're not going to have the passions engaged in the same way. And everybody's watching, and it's going to be very easy to spot, you know, these efforts as they come. Um, and so, you know, I, it just seems insane to think that the best idea, if you want to prevent fraudulent f- findings in presidential or state-level elections, is to give the power to the Justice Department, which, you know, which centralizes them and therefore makes them much more susceptible to kind of systematic fraud, actually. Well, but this is another, um, I think, uh, kind of mirror image effect on both sides, which is that both Republicans and Democrats both have an idea about centralizing power um, in that they 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 look toward, you know, controlling the levers of power without thinking about uh, what happens when they're when they're the ones they're, they're not the ones in control. Um, you know, and this is they, they're both making that mistake. But isn't a huge part of all this? Um, doesn't it have to do with the fact that uh, Biden and Democrats and have actually no, they don't know what to do about the problems that Americans actually care about right now, uh, which are uh, uh, inflation, the economy, getting out of COVID. Um, so there's just this, this whole sort of secondary like uh landscape of issues that 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 doesn't really exist that they that that's been like dropped on top of the real world our real world problems i mean i think we, we talked about this yesterday i think absolutely um uh moving the sh- you know shifting the emphasis and the focus to the threat to democracy and voting rights and all of that um is a is a is a 
if you do go with, you don't even have to go with the idea that Biden doesn't believe all this. But it is a mark that the that the Democrats are, have decided that they are going to run a base stimulating election to terrify Democratic voters who otherwise do not turn out. And I'm not talking about like in 2018, Democrats won 40 seats in the House in part by getting voters who didn't vote for them before, but high turnout voters who literally jumped from the Republicans to the Democrats to send a message, right? And there was a very high turnout midterm election, or the highest turnout midterm election ever. 118 million votes were cast. But most of those were, they were voters. And what they seem to be trying to do now is to create a 2008 Obama-like situation in which they get all these new voters to come out of fearing the threat to democracy by saying essentially they're trying to, they're going to put y'all in chains. You know, they're 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 coming after us. They're trying to limit our power. Our power, of course, then being African American power or minority power, if you want to uh, understand it more generally. Um, and it's January. It's as though they are surrendering the idea that they can turn things around politically for them through conventional political government. Because they can't. And actually, I think there's something to what you're saying, Abe, and that there's almost a sense in which by making it this existential threat to democracy itself, it gives them cover for what they really want to do, which is blow up the filibuster so they can ram through stuff that they do not have a majority, even in their own party's support for. But it, but that sounds pretty bad, right? It sounds pretty bad to say, we know the American people don't want this. We know moderate Democrats don't want this, but we know what's best. We're going to shove this down the throats of the American people. Instead, it sounds better to say to protect democracy, we have to get rid of this outdated abuse. I, uh, the Biden administration was saying the other day that the filibuster has been abused. Like we, this is this this has been misused. So now we have to like shape it a little more. You see what they're doing? It's incredibly cynical to wrap that up in this idea of sincere authenticity of democracy. Blah blah blah. It does come across as insincere. It comes across as inauthentic. And I I do have at least a little bit of respect for these crazy activists on the left who are. Listening to Biden say this and going, that's ridiculous. We don't believe you. And there's, you know, th- there's a way that this, a-, a lot of this comes down to how can we actually pressure Joe Manchin, whether implicitly or not. This is an issue where Man- Manchin actually cares a lot about elections. He was the Secretary of State of West Virginia. He knows a huge amount about elections. It's sort of weird. Manchin always speaks very broadly and generally, but when you get him talking about elections, he knows an enormous amount about it. He really does care about it. And I think they see that this is a place where he might have been pushed to do something. I don't think that's right. I don't think he's actually going to, 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 to kill the filibuster for election reform. But it's a place where they can pressure him. And it, it's, it, 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 to me, the, the, this, what, what they're trying to do makes exactly the opposite case of the one they're trying to make. You could not come up with a stronger argument for the filibuster than the party with the smallest congressional majority in American history trying to nationalize elections in every state against the will of every elected Republican in the United States. You say, if we want to make sure that tiny majorities don't don't run roughshod over large minorities, we should have some protections. And you say, well, how would that happen? Well, the smallest majority we've ever seen in our politics is trying to change the rules for how people get elected in every state in the United States. And the only thing standing in the way of that is the filibuster. That's just about the best argument for the filibuster you could possibly imagine in theory. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the history of this, uh, this sort of dementia on voting. But before I do that, let me talk to you about Bolenbrand sheets, 
As I said, Noah is our Bolin branch expert, and he is um, having a well-deserved uh, week to 10 days off. So I'm really not in a position to talk about the buttery smoothness of the sheets and the beautiful color that he loves so much, but uh, we've heard him talk about it so much, and I have friends who have Bolin branch sheets who talk about this so much, that I feel confident as a third-party player in endorsing the idea that Bolin brand sheets feel so soft and light, you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud and they're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. Softest organic sheets on the market get better with every wash. Comfort isn't their only standard. They only use 100% sustainable raw materials. And as the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen, you can feel as good about your Bolin brand sheets as they feel against your skin. Not too hot, not too cool. The perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. Focused on quantity over quality. Excuse me, quality over quantity. No inflated thread counts here because more isn't always better. And they're made to a higher standard, 100% organic cotton, ethical production, thoughtful attention to every tale. Bolin Branch offers 17-inch deep-fitted sheets and labeled sides to help you make your bed beautifully every time because the little things make a big difference. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a fair price plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BolinBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary checkout. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And uh, let me talk to you about our friends at Wealthfront. Uh, you can start investing in no time in 2022 with Wealthfront, Wealthfront's classic portfolio. Uh, or make it your own thing uh, by investing in the things that you care about or that you like, socially responsible funds or technology or crypto trust or hundreds of other investments. Wealthfront, the app, was designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. Trusted with over $28 billion in assets, helping ha- nearly half a million people build their wealth. If you don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill, Wealthfront will do it for you and help you do it. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio? They do it for you automatically. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful that it has a 4.9 stars rating in the Apple App Store out of five. Start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life. Go to wealthfront.com slash commentary. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash commentary to start building your wealth. Go to wealthfront.com slash commentary to get started today. Okay. So 2000, right? Uh, electoral election integrity be, really begins as a major issue as a result of the disputed 2000 election in Florida, where the famous butterfly ballot in uh, Palm Beach County uh, apparently led people wrongly to vote for uh, Pat Buchanan instead of for Al Gore. And uh, it was said, and then we had that spectacle of people, you know, examining the hanging chads of the physical ballots with uh, magnifying glasses to see whether you could discern the actual intent of the voter who had cast the disputed ballots and all that. And so, uh, Democrats and 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 you know, good government responsible people all over the place said, you know, the problem here is paper paper beds de- terrible, paper ballots are terrible. Chads, it's a horrible system. We need to go electronic. We got to go electronic. No, need to modernize our elections. This is ridiculous. Let's get uh, you know optical character readers, or let's get you know election machines that can do this. And then in 2004, George Bush wins, and suddenly it's like election, elect you know uh, machines is terrible. Debolt uh, machines have been have been uh, hacked 
or you know uh, set in the, with a specific pattern to cause uh, Bush to get elected, uh, we need to have backups. We need to have paper backups or something like that. So suddenly Democrats go from paper ballots are terrible to paper ballots are essential. And the Republican Party has now gone through exactly the same maneuver in reverse, right? So, um, so in 2020, what happened? Uh, I don't even remember it. Dominion and, and Shkabinian, uh run by the Venezuelan or Argentinian Communist Party, changed the voting totals in Maricopa County, Arizona, and that is, you know, and that is why uh, that is why uh, Biden won. And this is part of a, a a plot, and it's actually part of a Russian plot because actually Russia wanted Biden to win, and the whole Russia hoax actually, did, you know, uh, uh, was actually about helping Democrats win and not helping Republicans win. And so this is all, uh, you know, everything is is uh, is backwards and everything is upside down. Um. So basically, for 20 years, both parties have been searching for ways uh, to create uh, the image that they're not sore losers when they lose, but that, in fact, they are righteous victims of a horrible conspiracy against them. And it doesn't matter. All that matters is who wins and loses. Because, of course, this terrible, deep old machine that gets Republicans elected doesn't account for Obama getting 70 million votes and winning 375 electoral votes or winning in 2012 or whatever. Um, so help like what I, this is. You know. I, I think that last point is really key, John. This happens when elections are very close and we've had a lot of very close elections in the 21st century. In a, in a way, the problem we have really is that elections are very close and neither party is doing all that much to try to make them less close. They both just double down on their own already devoted voters and are not trying to win winnable voters that could give them a real majority. And so we've now seen, I mean, the last two presidential elections, one party has lost a very narrow election and gone on to pretend that it just didn't happen. The Democrats, uh, after Trump won, went looking for conspiracies. And the Republicans, after Biden won, very quickly found a conspiracy. And that has kept them from actually trying to ask themselves, why are we not winning these elections? You know, how could I lose an election to Donald Trump? Um, and, and instead has left them in this place where they say, the obvious truth is that the other party is destroying our democracy. And so we have to fight them to the death, which is a message that only appeals to those devoted voters that only gave them 50% in the first place. And so I, I, I think a, a big piece of it, and, 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 and as you say, when Obama won comfortably, you just couldn't really do that. Um, and it is worth remembering some of that history. The Democrats, you know, the, 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 the way the process that by which Congress ultimately certifies the presidential election result works has been around since 1887. There was only one challenge in Congress in the entire 20th century, and it was a legitimate challenge. There was actually a faithless elector in Hawaii in 1968, and nobody knew what to do about it, and they worked it out. That's it. In the 21st century, you've had a challenge just about every election. In 2004, when Bush won pretty comfortably, there were several dozen House Democrats who challenged the result in Ohio. In fact, one of them is now the chairman of the January 6th Commission. Um, and, you know, for no reason whatsoever, on a truly crazy conspiracy, they challenged the result. 
Then Republicans on their own truly crazy conspiracy have done that in 2020. And, you know, maybe the problem here really isn't the election system. Uh, pretty clearly it isn't. We're looking at a, a kind of psychosis of the political system that's expressing itself as concern about democracy when it's pretty far from that. If you take the Trump 2020 theory, and I think all of us have probably gotten emails or certainly I got a bunch of them, uh, you know, writing about this for the New York Post and stuff like that, that there's no way that Biden got 81 million votes because did you see how nobody showed up at the car rally? And he was in the basement and nobody was enthusiastic. And did you see how this worked? And, you know, Trump, you know, obviously people love Trump and nobody loves Biden. But that's because of the people, aside from everything else, it's because the people who emailed me this and emailed us and had this idea never met anybody who voted for Biden. Don't know anybody who voted for Biden. Everybody's living in their silos. It's a very rare person like the four of us who essentially live in enemy territory. And so you have no, you have constant truck with people who vote and think differently from you. But that really isn't true of a lot of the country's most heated political people. And they start thinking that it's an abstraction that anybody thinks the things that they are, they scoff and are disgusted by. Um, then they are ballasted by the disgraceful behavior of liberal institutions uh, like the social media that suppressed the Hunter Biden story, the Hunter Biden laptop story on the preposterous grounds that the laptop had been manufactured by the Russians. I mean, that was the idea. 45 former intelligence officers released a letter saying this looked like disinformation, which would have meant that the laptop, nobody said that the New York Post had not seen the laptop, had not looked at the images and the emails and whatever was on the laptop they had, uh, but that the laptop itself was a brilliant work of, you know, massive disinformation. And the stories were suppressed on social media. I don't think that that had a material effect on the election. I don't think that had the Hunter Biden story broken as big as conservatives would have wanted it, that it would have made much of a difference at all. In fact, you could have, you could have looked at this very easily as a moment in which Biden would have said, leave my son alone, leave my son alone. He's had a lot of problems in his life and his brother died of cancer and my son died of cancer and yes maybe he's made some missteps and yes maybe he tried he, he in desperate need tried to profit off my name and i you know i'm very disappointed by that but leave him alone like that that could have been a very neutralizing effect it was after all it was a month before the election it wasn't like the last the week before the election which was like the the bush dui hit that probably cost him a couple million votes but you do have these moments when liberal institutions panic and they think that social media is, you know, controlling the American brain and they panic and then they do try to put their finger on the tip the scales uh, illegitimately. And then they give ballast to the insane ideas of the of the Republicans and conservatives who've never met a liberal. But there is the the Hunter Biden laptop story is going to prove, I think, to have a very long tail because there's a shadow war that's being waged right now that will have very serious implications for whether or not people believe in the legitimacy of future elections. And that's why you see a lot more people on the left suddenly using the words misinformation and disinformation. If you, you could draw a graph that is a straight arrow upward 
between when they cared about misinformation and disinformation and when they didn't. And there is a really active group of kind of activists on this front who would very much like to gut a lot of the protections the First Amendment provides. It's it, it, it feeds into what you were saying earlier in the podcast about Inslee's effort to use the state's power to suppress certain kinds of speech or to criminalize certain kinds of speech. And that battle is ongoing. And it's really interesting to that the, the alliances that are forming aren't clear yet. But there is a lot of power in the liberal mainstream media to control messaging still, even though we have a a kind of chaotic but thriving conservative alternative media, there is still an amazing amount of institutional power that can come down like a hammer and change the way information gets to people. And and yes, it does often prompt crazy conspiracies on the other side. But I think there, there are more subtle ways this happens. And I think it starts at the local news level, which, you know, local news in this country is in is has been in a crisis uh, situation for a long time. You see a lot of liberal special interest groups buying up local media outlets to use as a way of, you know, kind of promoting a kind of news that is very partisan. Um, so th- there's all kinds of stuff going on right now in that ecosystem. That I think in 10 or 20 years, we're going to look back and say, this was the beginning of that. This is the beginning of a battle in terms of our information ecosystem that is got a long way before we figure all these rules out. And I think it feeds into the distrust of election results as well in a way that's pretty pernicious. Well, I mean, especially when you think about the, um, the, the cracking down on, on what is deemed as misinformation by social media, that was given a huge boost by the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory. I mean, that is when everything was deemed misinformation um, and that w- which led, you know, directly Hunter Biden. And then there was a point where Facebook would, would crack down on you if, if you posted something about the lab leak uh, hypothesis uh, on COVID. So it, it is very much a runaway train. Well, we then had the example of our friend, former commentary employee, uh, Bethany Mandel, who had started this small publishing business to publish children's books about conservative, iconic conservative figures, uh, finding that her the right of this new company to uh, put ads on Facebook had been um, uh, restricted uh, by Facebook. And she went on Twitter and uh, say, what, what the hell is happening? And then Facebook said, oh, we made a mistake after like 24 hours. A mistake was made or an error was made. But we all know that what happened was some content committee member saw this and saw there were books about Amy Coney Barrett, you know, heroine of America and stuff like that and said, well, this is obviously a misinformation campaign. It falls under the standards of our content committee. We are going to say you can't you can't use Facebook uh, for advertising Um, and essentially did it, you know, without because this is the way you deal with social media companies like it's uh, it's they shoot first and ask questions later. Um, you can't even, you know, if anything happens to you, you can't contact them. You know, you, there's no phone number. There's no contact point. They just do it. And so this, this was over in, you know, 14 hours, and it was probably a pretty good publicity boost for her. But if it had remained permanent, like Amazon's decision to refuse to distribute Ryan Anderson's book about transgenderism, um, if you if you make it permanent, then you really are interfering with the ability of the American people to hear all sides and all views. And that's not a media problem. That is a, that is this third issue, this new thing. These, it's a platform problem, a private corporate platform problem. Uh, and they, they constantly claim that they're not media, right? That's their, if they were media, they would be regulable and, you know, under, under the communications decency act and other things. Uh, but they're not, they're, they're deemed, they're deemed to be a kind of, um, 
transmission point, like a mailbox and not like a, you know, not like a, a producer of content. And, uh, and uh, this is why, you know, we find ourselves in this weird position in which point about the Hunter Biden story is it didn't need to be published by other forces in the mainstream media. They could avoid it. Had there not been interference on the part of Twitter and Facebook, the story would have been so the New York Post would have gotten 25,000 times more hits uh, than it would have gotten otherwise because nobody else was publishing it. But instead, they suppressed it and they suppressed any effort to link to it. And they suppressed any effort to link to a story that linked to it, um, which, of course, gives sucker to the idea that uh, this story was so terrifying it had to be suppressed because it would have tilted the balance of the election. And I don't know where, where, where you go with that, but Yuval, I want to move on to uh, talk about COVID a little bit because that's another one of your uh, sub you've written about. You've written about this twice for commentary in the last two years. And um, something happened on Sunday that I don't think we've taken the full measure of, but uh, that I think um, is a kind of uh, um, uh, it's like if there's such a thing as a slow acting neutron bomb or something like that. Um, Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, went on uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos and acknowledged something that no one has acknowledged publicly yet, which is that 75% of the deaths from COVID, at least in the first iteration of COVID, uh, resulted from people who had a four comor- at least four comorbidities. Not one comorbid, not two, not three, but four Vaccinated comorbidities. people. Vaccinated people. Except vaccinated yeah. people. For, Important for, to give that because a lot of people were spreading right. the idea that this was all COVID patients. Right. It was vaccinated. Right. COVID okay, patients. vaccinated COVID patients for comorbidities. Um, what do we make of this, and how? What effect is this going to have going forward on the efforts to um, compel lockdowns or modified lock or whatever, whatever it is, what, whatever is is going on here? Well, look, I, I think ultimately what she said was another way of saying that the vaccines fundamentally transform the circumstances in which we are living through an epidemic. Um, and so vaccinated people basically are safe from COVID. And that's clear in a lot of different ways. Um, and I, I think she was at first misunderstood or misrepresented as having said that in general, COVID is only dangerous if you also have these other these other comorbidities. But that's not true. And that's not what she said. Um, so that early on, when we were first facing COVID without an understanding of it and without vaccines, um, this it, this was a pandemic that required a massive response. We're now in a place where that's just not the case anymore. And it's another way of saying and seeing that this is now an endemic virus, that we're living in a situation that we're going to be in for a very long time to come, and that we have to think very differently about the role of public policy and the role of various kinds of interventions. A lot of what we now are still doing in many places just needs to end, given the reality that at this point, if you are vaccinated, then this really is just a manageable problem. Um, And I think the administration has been slow to say that, has been wary of saying that. They haven't found a way to say we're winning. We're, we've, we've basically won this fight. And, you know, as long as you get vaccinated, you're on the side that's won this fight. They still feel the need to be in that emergency situation. And 
you know, that leaves us in a place where our policy approach doesn't make much sense. I um, want to tell a story about a, a friend of mine uh, who has a teenager who is in some in some dire uh, straits um, and, uh, you know, is, uh, is, is in therapy with, with a therapist. And, and um, when, when all the, all the rules got lifted uh, that said that no therapist was seeing anybody in person, nonetheless, they would see each other, you know, with masks on. Okay. So then people got double vaxxed and therapists double vaxxed and the kid was double vaxxed and, and they could, you know, in theory, then see each other without masks on. And then Omicron happened uh, and uh, masks went back on. So it's very hard to do psychotherapy with masks on for obvious reasons. It's very hard for the therapist to make sense out of the what the kid is going through without seeing, you know, expressions. Although, of course, in classic Freudian analysis, the shrink doesn't necessarily see the face of the patient who's lying on a couch. But let's say this is not the case in this case, uh, but they're wearing masks. And so expressions, feelings, emotions that flit across the face and all of that are, you know, it's need to be kind of intuited and not discerned. Uh, therapy is about creating a safe space and a, um, you know, ther- a relationship with the therapist that is intimate. And that's obviously very hard to achieve masks. So here's the case. So the case is the kid gets COVID and recovers from COVID, and the therapist gets COVID and recovers from COVID. The therapist works for a larger organization. And the question is asked, can you take your mask off in therapy because you had COVID, the kid had COVID, you're both double vaxxed and boosted. Um, And the answer is no, not yet. I mean, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, Because institutionally, we have gone from the very beginning of this uh, epidemic with a one-size-fits-all national standard strategy that even if different states don't use it, certainly healthcare organizations are using, which is everybody wears a mask. So you have a case in which that no longer makes any observable sense. People who are vax-boosted and have antibodies from Omicron, let's say, and therefore not going to get it again, and are sitting with somebody who is in exactly the same circumstance are compelled. And now I guess if you close the door, you know, no one's going to see inside the room. Um, but uh, that is the ultimate story here is that uh, the greatness of America lies in letting a thousand flowers bloom in terms of how to deal with things. And that was wildly unacceptable to the liberal consensus in the country. The idea that there would be value in the notion that Florida might have different rules from New York. So you could see what happens when you have different standards and learn from the state that had greater success or something like that was not only rejected, but considered a flagrantly immoral view that was murderous. Now, I can understand that that works before the vaccines. It doesn't work after the vaccines. And so uh, after the vaccines, maybe people with four comorbidities like were uh, gulled, you know, did not accept the fact that they still remained because of the comorbidities, uh, you know, at, at, at greater risk than 
other people or something like that because you have this 75%, you know, th- that story. But I don't know. So we, we, and here we have like a very good synecdoche example of what happens when you, when you have a one size fits all policy for 330 million people that is implicitly destructive of the health care needs of one of those 330 million people. Uh, I'll say one more story, not to, not to like, uh, you know, filibuster here, but, um, uh, uh, my sister has kidney stones. I, I suffer from kidney stones sometimes. She had surgery scheduled for December 23rd and then January 7th. And um, those surgeries were postponed because uh, elective or non-emergency surgeries were now postponable. Well, you know, if you, if you know about kidney stones, they're intermittently as painful as anything on earth can be. So she was suffering a lot from flank pain and all this. Well, so they canceled the surgery on on, on January 7th, and um, she was then, a couple of days ago, admitted to an emergency room uh, because she went septic because of the kidney stones, uh, which had uh, uh, you know blocked something in her system, and they therefore had to go in and put in a stent. They had to perform a surgery because they were not allowed to perform a surgery which is a very simple 20 minute surgery to, to, to blast the kidney stones. So that's another example of this one size fits. We cannot have elective surgeries that then led to somebody in a potentially, I mean, she's okay, but like, imagine if she weren't imagine if the sepsis had been vastly more serious. And this was because surgeries were canceled because of a panic in December where there were no hospital bed problems. So that's the other thing. Like, I just don't see how this regime stands except for this constant hunger to moral, to, to, to make moral things that are practical, let's say. You've all, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's an example of how what the, the notion that what we're looking for is the right set of rules is now basically a mistake. Um, and it, instead, what we're looking for is a, a way to gradually emerge from this emergency um, and allow people to have some flexibility. That's what the vaccines make possible. These, the, I mean, it, we cannot simultaneously say that these are miraculous vaccines that, uh, th- that have saved the world and say that we're still in the same place we were two years ago. Um, this has to have practical implications. I do think there are some good signs on this front. There's been resistance to closing schools that I've been very impressed with, including in, in very left-leaning areas, including the one where I live in, in suburban Maryland. I was sure the schools would get shut down looking at the case rates uh, in the last few weeks, and that has not happened. Um, there's been real uh, resistance to that, not only from our Republican governor, but even from local officials who just say enough is enough. We're not going back to that. The kids now are vaccinated, even though they never were the ones getting sick anyway. The teachers and the kids are all vaccinated. So why would we do that? I think that kind of thinking has got to start taking over. And, you know, we, we you have to see that the exceptional situations sometimes require a change of rules. But the exceptional situation now is the unvaccinated person. We're getting to 80% of American adults being vaccinated and enough. I mean, it really has to be the case that 
life has got to go on. An emergency, by definition, has got to be a temporary situation. Also, also, I think um, uh, healthcare professionals, I know doctors, I know who work in hospitals. So we're now, as you say, look, we're sort of at well, one in five Americans are uh, one in five adult Americans are now, you know, outside of the vaccination umbrella, right? Okay. Um, uh, that's both a, a, an incredibly low number and a very high number in the sense that if uh, 20% of people uh, are, are outside the, you know, I, I don't know how much compliance you really want from Americans, you know, 20% of whom probably still believe that the earth is flat, you know, or believe all kinds of, you know, so it's a pretty astonishing number. It's 80% that, uh, that, that are protected by the umbrella and a fifth who aren't. But, you know, the people that I know, healthcare professionals are now getting angrier and angrier and angrier at the, at the unvaccinated because that's who they're treating. They're treating people for whom there is a, you know, for whom there is a mitigation, let's not say an elimination strategy, like we're not going to eliminate COVID from as a possibility in your life, but we'll mitigate the effects or whatever. You know, it's like uh, uh, 99 out of 100 cases in hospitals are, are, are unvaccinated people and, um, and they're going into hospitals and there's staffing shortages at hospitals. And uh, now, on the one hand, liberals are in full of rage at anti-vaxxer, you know, liberal full of rage at people who talk down the vaccines and, and aren't COVID hawks and all of that. Um, and on the other hand, haven't yet made the transition to uh, enough already with you. Fine. You've made the decision. You've made the decision to risk it. G- go right ahead. And you know what? Uh, you, are, you are flooding the healthcare system you're being bad <laughs> you know people were raging when when here's the other thing just i'm like all over the place but a lot of like anti anti-vaxxers were enraged by the fact that the Biden administration keeps saying that what we have here is an epidemic of the unvaccinated because look at how many vaccinated people got covid i got it i'm vaccinated that's bullshit i mean it is an epi- where it is an epidemic which is which is taxing the healthcare system it is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. If you're vaccinated, you've had the benefit of the vaccine. It is not an epidemic of the vaccinated because Omicron is not an epidemic for the vaccinated. I mean, it's an illness that vaccinated are getting that is pretty mild. It's like saying that, you know, the flu is an epidemic of the unvaccinated, you know, what of the vaccinated. But in order to win this argument, see, that's where everyone's lost the thread, including people who do want this to move forward. They are now joining in a sort of view or position here, which is like, no, don't blame the unvaccinated for the healthcare strain. That's you're being mean. You're so mean to the unvaccinated. Everyone's so mean to the unvaccinated. And all the while, there's a resistance to changing rules in a way that would reward people for getting vaccinated. I mean, if, if we say that if we're angry at people who are unvaccinated, then let's let's channel our anger into applying mask requirements to people who are unvaccinated, for example, rather than putting everybody in a situation where they can't go to the hospital for other things, they can't take the mask off in other places. um, We have to one way or another make a decision about whether we think these vaccines are working or not. And surely they are. Right. Well, I'm sorry, everybody. I feel like I, you know, took the floor like Joe Biden uh, in the Senate when, you know, Barack Obama leaned over to John McCain uh, in 
2005 when Joe Biden got up to speak and passed John McCain a note that said, kill me now. I'm, I, I hope I did not. Well, you, you didn't try to divide us into three countries, so we're fine. We're so good. We're good. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we will. Uh, Yuval Levin, author of The Fractured Republic, and of course, Time to Build, both remarkable books. Just Google Yuval Levin and commentary, and you can read his great pieces on, on, on the pandemic. Um, tomorrow, uh, I think we're going to spend time talking about Abe's uh, blockbuster piece in the February issue, which is called "Yes, This Is a Counter Revolution." Um, so be be here for that. And thanks again, Yuval, for Abe and Christine, the absent Noah Rothman. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.